Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. Being in the outdoors enables, I find it the best space to regulate yourself. You're outdoors and the soles of your shoes are, are connected to, to earth. Um, your skin is connected to, to air. You're hearing sounds, you're smelling scents. And that, that to me, there's nothing more grounding than that. And that enables me to, to regulate and access a level of mindfulness that I couldn't do if I was listening to a mindfulness program in a room in a house uh, with all the thoughts about my working day going on. Those were the inspiring words of Tom Mulvaney. Tom is the General Manager of Impact and Strategy at Family Life. Family Life is a specialist family services provider working with vulnerable children, families and communities since 1970. I catch up with Tom fortnightly in a work capacity, so it's great to have a more casual humans of purpose conversation and to learn about Tom's passions and interests within and beyond his role of family life. I have some exciting news to share with you prior to our Patreon thank you. I'm pleased to announce that I'll be partnering with Cooper Investors to produce a podcast docu-series on mental health and well-being. Producing a different sort of podcast has been on my agenda for some time, so it's an amazing opportunity to go deep and find some answers regarding our mental health system and to also share some of my own mental health journey along the way. This project called Mental Wealth is going to take a great deal of focus and energy to complete, so I've taken the hard decision to put a hold on Humans of Purpose while this project is in the works. Whilst I won't be running regular Humans of Purpose episodes, I will be dropping regular bonus clips taken from the fascinating interview subjects I'll be having with mental health experts as part of Mental Wealth. Humans of Purpose is now 100% community-powered, with our generous Patreon supporters enabling me to cover the majority of my monthly costs of production. So as always, a big thank you goes to our community of supporters, including Humanism, Clyde, Susie, Kynan, Deb, Sue K, Carmen, Misha, Jasmine, Sue P, Joel H, Levi, Jules, Sally, Will, B, Lyndon, Olivia, Joe, McCartan, Joel F and Stuart. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tom as much as I did, and I hope you also enjoy the clips in the weeks and months to come before we release the official release of the Mental Wealth Podcast. Tom Mulvaney, welcome to Humans and Purpose. Terrific to be with you today. Thank you very much, Mike. It's fantastic to be here. Well, I feel like we do this catch-up every week in a slightly different format, so I was saying that it's good to catch you on um, on Squadcast or Recorded Podcast, and your beard is looking sensational as always. I think you're one of the few people who'd say that, but um, it's, a, it's a great COVID initiative to have a bit of a dirty beard to, to keep the entertainment levels up. Absolutely. Mate, I wonder if you could indulge us and tell us a bit about your journey into the space. What you do at Family Life is incredibly impactful. Um, I'd say the things that you do outside of Family Life are also really interesting and impactful, but I'd love to just get a bit of a sense of um, journey um, from your perspective, if you would. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Well, first off, uh, I feel very fortunate to work at an organisation like Family Life where uh, the colleagues, clients and community I work with make a huge impact. Uh, so, so I'm not so sure it's my role, but it's it's great to stand behind people who are making a huge impact in, in our field. Uh, my role at Family Life is General Manager Impact and Strategy, uh, and our teams support practice quality, practice development and innovation, um, quality, compliance, research and evaluation, um, uh, amongst other things. We're really passionate around community change and 
how um, to best support individuals and families, we need to activate healthy communities around them. And that's complex place-based work that needs to be co-designed locally with the communities that you're working with. Uh, and that's a huge focus in our team and across family life more broadly. Uh, so the journey to get into this really exciting systems-oriented uh, work has been an interesting one. Um, I studied outdoor education originally uh, and am a passionate outdoors enthusiast. Uh, as I know you are, Mike, um, I spent a few years working in a field called bush adventure therapy. Um, and bush adventure therapy seeks to uh, unpack therapeutic approaches to work with people but in a natural environment and often uses vehicles like rock climbing, bushwalking, whitewater rafting, abseiling uh, as as the vehicle to engage people and to have that participatory, participatory outdoor approach to um, therapy. Uh, I primarily worked with young people in that space um, at Bendigo TAFE at a place called Typo Station, and I was really fortunate to uh, conduct um, a year-long research project on the efficacy of bush adventure therapy while I was studying an honours in psychology. Um, and look, it stands up. It's a field of practice that's probably understated in Australia, um, but it stands up as a really great um, intervention to support therapeutic outcomes for young people, um, but I believe outcomes for, for people from all walks of life. And what I love about that approach is it's teaching us to care for others but also care for the world that's that's holding us and keeping us healthy so it's a, it's a bit more of a systemic approach than you see in many therapeutic orientations uh, from that work i transitioned into more formal study in psychology and, and i'm now a psychologist um, and i've had a great experience working with individuals families uh, in a variety of casework and, and psychological roles um, and now I find myself really, really passionate about um, trauma recovery and trauma repair, as well as uh, systems change and, and bush adventure therapy. Well, what an outstanding combination of things you're doing. It's um, super interesting and it sort of spans the psychological to the environmental. But, you know, exploring also that, that link between um, yourself and the environment through the bushwalking therapy, I think is super interesting. Yeah, I think it's really important. If we look at um, systems that uphold disadvantage, we're looking at systems like patriarchy uh, that marginalise the already marginalised, that create inequality and disadvantage. And often our world is a victim of that same marginalisation. The environment around us experiences the same sort of subjugation that, that people experiencing dis disadvantage or, or marginalisation can experience. So it does require a new focus, a more holistic view, and, and certainly an uplift that creates equality for each other, but also um, for the world around us. I acknowledge that that's pretty easy for me to sit here and say as a, a very privileged white male, um, but but that's where I think collectively we want to work on the journey. I think um, what I find interesting about what you just said is the parallel between caring for the environment and the planet, the climate, and for ourselves and each other. Yeah, and it's it's sort of a direct parallel. It's, it's a circle. I think if we can um, 
care for each other and, and care for the world around us, it'll continue to reticulate through through a, a circle, circular kind of systemic approach, not a not a linear approach. And Tom, um, you, you mentioned at the start you do a wide range of roles in your portfolio for family life, but you're also a trained psychologist. Do you step into the shoes sometimes and are you interested in sort of doing more mental health clinical work or is that something that's sort of, you know, out to pasture for now? Uh, it is out for past year, but it's a dream I'm not letting go of. Um, I'd, I'd love to do more more direct clinical work. It's about finding the time to do it meaningfully. Um, I think it's it's quite dangerous to undertake that work unless you've got the time to sit there and, and spend it with clients. Um, and I've got a lot of experience to build. Um, I, I don't count myself as an experienced clinician, particularly as a psychologist. I'm a fairly recent graduate, so um, I am keen to to pursue that dream and get back into direct client work, but also recognize the limitations of, of my experience and what I can bring into that space too. And I mean, we do similar roles at different organizations, but I think I always think that your role is really interesting because you have that clinical governance and, um, you know, that expertise and training also. What do you sort of find that it brings to the role to sort of have that psychological um, background and training? Yeah, I think it's really important um, in in systems leadership and organisational leadership to to be in teams that bring that expertise in. So I bring some of it, but I'm part of a broader team that that contribute much more expertise. Uh, I think it. I think we've always got to remember, uh, and you do a great job of this as well, in, in thinking why we're doing the work we're doing, why are we reviewing this policy, why are we making this organisational structural decision, why are we setting this budget? Uh, it's all to to uh, meet the purpose of making the world a better place. It's all to focus on uh, positive outcomes for children and families, um, for marginalised people. And I think if if you've been fortunate enough to have a background in, in direct practice, um, it just makes it um, quite kind of brings a practical decision making lens to to those operational organisational decisions you need to make, where you can contextualise those decisions within the theory and practice of the work that's happening on the ground. We um, we're fortunate enough to catch up every two weeks to talk strategy for a good half an hour. That's moments that I savor from our uh, weekly routine. But I, I wonder if you just talk a bit about the challenges that COVID has brought to a strategy role within a not for profit. Oh, what an interesting question! I love catching up each fortnight and, and walk away um, kind of amazed at, at where we could take strategy and and if we could spend much more time on it than we're able to. And, and that's one of being that's been one of the big impacts of COVID, I believe. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it too, but I believe that uh, COVID has. Uh, caused us to be quite reactive. It's caused us to um, have a very heroic response to a, a massive challenge and adapt significantly our service systems. And the people I know doing the work in, in a remote uh, space are doing an amazing job of that work, but, it, but it's hard and we're continuing to work to make that as, as safe as possible. Uh, that That's in many ways prohibited long-term thinking and uh, that, that's a, a risk because this is a massive opportunity. It's so rare you get large-scale social disruptions like this. And there's a lot of literature from economists that talk about the major economic downturns, the major depressions are, are the times in, in our centuries from which uh, grow massive innovation and social reform. 
and and this is likely to be one such time. So that there's a risk that we don't lift our eyes and look far enough into the future and make the changes now that enable us to set strategy that carry us into a new way of working going forward. Um, but at the same time, there's a risk that we focus too much on that and not enough on caring for each other and our systems right now in a way that makes them viable and sustainable. Do you have any thoughts you'd add to that? Oh, so many thoughts. I mean, I think I think you make some really good points. I like the idea of like where is your eye level at in terms of strategy? Where, where is the gaze at? Is it lifted high enough um, above the feet to the horizon or is the horizon too far to be setting your mass? And, you know, some people say that you shouldn't make changes or alter strategy in times of crisis, you should hold firm and that's a conservative view. Others say that when things are uncertain, that's the best time to have strategy and to double down on um, on creating new ideas and new plans for the future. So I think it, it is a really interesting time and I think uh, different organisations will, their responses might vary depending on the the risk preferences of maybe the major um, seat holders or power holders in the organisation. I know at Task Force for us, there's been a real tension there between sort of holding firm, but also embracing the opportunities that come with that widespread social disruption that you mentioned. Mm, I think the the uh, the picture you paint is one of needing to find balance. And if we mm. if we think about the complex system we found ourselves in, you know, a, a trauma view or a systems view, you would say that if you're if you're working over here on one part of the system, it's going to impact another part of the system. You need a, a holistic response. So I think it's really important that as we set strategy going forward, that's that's typically about the changes we want to make and the difference we want to see in the future. But we need to make sure that we're complementing that with setting systems that support um, health and sustainability right now, and that's still strategy. Navigating us through such a challenging time is is still strategy. It may not start in a boardroom and be a facilitated workshop. It might be uh, a back of the envelope plan off the back of a meeting with a few different stakeholders that redirects uh, subtly the way that you're offer, offering a service or carrying your meetings or running supervisory practice. But but that's still strategy that's moving us forward in the short term. Yeah, I think that's really well said, Tom. And I think the other thing that's been interesting about this period is the focus on resilience and building more resilient organisations for me has been um, one where it's sort of like you've got your general uh, maintenance that you do on an organisation and its structure, its policies, its governance, but um, learning to be resilient and learning to adapt well to changes like this that might come in the future. Maybe in a way COVID has really um, fast-tracked our future-proofing and our resilience building that we're all doing. Yeah, I think that's such a good point and something uh, we've been thinking and talking about lately is, is how do you build that resilience? What, where's the best place to start? So we know resilience uh, looks like uh, mentally and physically well systems and the clue to resilience is when systems can be agile and move and adapt um, through adversity. Uh, that's a resilient system. So how do you get to that point? Uh, and there's, there's heaps of schools of thought with, with far wiser people than I who are contributing towards the establishment of resilient systems. But I keep coming back to the thought that an organisational system can only be resilient when it's its people uh, are healthy, cared for and well. 
and when they're healthy, cared for and well, they're still going to approach burnout. They're still going to experience stress. But if, if you've got a, an approach that generally aims to keep them healthy, well, respected, looked after, then they're going to bounce back from that burnout, bounce back from that stress and experience that that resilience and um, yeah, longer-term tolerance of adversity. As a psychologist, I wonder if you think much about Maslow's hierarchy of needs at times like this and think, you know, what do people most need to kind of get them by and then what are those additional layers that maybe you, you don't need to focus on as much but, you know, fulfilling the major needs of people before you kind of worry about anything else? Yeah, I think about this a bit in practice and, and also from a systems lens. Um, I'm always cautious and my colleagues have taught me this caution around applying Maslow's hierarchy uh, as it's theoretically represented because what I've learned is different people, different organisations, different cultures, different genders will we'll all have different needs at different times and, and categorising them, rating them in a hierarchy could, could unfairly misrepresent some of those needs. Uh, so our basic needs for, for shelter, food, water, um, are absolutely important. And when we talk about anyone's readiness for change or a system system's readiness for change, those needs do have to be met first. That's really practical. But often an emotional need, a need for emotional connection and support is just as important. So you wouldn't say, okay, I'm going to give you some water, some food, a house, and then emotional support. It, it has to be wrapped up together and, and that package provided together. So absolutely, I think we need to be pragmatic about uh, supporting people and building resilience and saying, what do you need to, to survive? And then how can we optimise that? And then how can we translate that into what do you need to thrive? Um, but that that what do you need to survive, I think, requires interrogation because it is going to be different for yeah. different people. I think we've got a real task on our hands in terms of figuring out with the, with the initial shock and then the second wave, what do people need? Like the, the radical shift to work from home broke up a lot of routines, a lot of people's sense of who they are, their comfort levels. For extroverts, a particular difficult time. And you sort of start to think a lot about what, what, does, what is the organization's responsibility now that people's uh, bedrooms and living rooms have quickly become their office cubicles? Yeah, I think, I think that's a massive can of worms. I think it's reformed uh, the way the workforce operates and um, you've got to think about what the organisation's responsibility, but I've also found myself thinking more and more about the individual's responsibility um, because while there's a greater risk that you've brought work into your home environment, there's also a huge risk that uh, home has come into your work environment. And I think one of the ways we've tried to build resilience in the workforce is to compartmentalise those areas of our life and keep them quite separate. Um, and you're right, that's that's been part of our identity formation. So you might ask someone, who are you? And they'll tell you about the compartment that represents their job. Some might tell you about the compartment that represents their family, but rarely do you get those compartments told together in that kind of identity <laughs> story. Um, but now, now what do we say? What does our identity look like? It, it's probably quite different. And I guess what I'm saying is perhaps it's time to decompartmentalize some of this stuff and think about it uh, with a little more complexity because work and home always overlap. You can't fully separate the two and it overlaps with other domains of our life. And, and maybe we shouldn't be working so hard to separate them and instead finding ways that enable us to keep them together in a in a sustainable way 
Absolutely. And I think it's a bit like funny to kind of talk about um, yourself as a worker or yourself as an individual as a separate thing is because it's the same person. It's just the concept of oneness um, is reflected differently depending on the context. And, you know, w- when you were saying what you did about how we identify with our work role so readily, it made me think about how in social situations, the first thing you'll say to anyone else is, what do you do? And it's like, you know, like that's your primary, that should be your primary uh, descriptor really. And, you know, maybe maybe we're in a world now where it's starting to change a little bit and you sometimes see on Twitter and other platforms people say husband, father, um, and then, you know, X, Y, Z after that, it's work. So maybe signs that the times are changing. Maybe they are, but but I kind of get why it's it's easy to say what do you do and have that conversation. And I, I personally feel far safer telling people what I do than telling them who I am. <laughs> and, and I guess guess that's why it's it's that safety lens that enables us to safely participate and not and and keep our armor on, not show that kind of vulnerability that comes with saying I'm a father, mother, sister, brother, um, you know, all the other things that we identify with, with within our life. Someone once said to me that um, you should just really get rid of that from your life, that saying, what do you do and say, what are you passionate about uh, when you meet someone for the first time, which I think is a lovely sentiment, but I can't see it playing out well in reality. (laughs) It's just sort of a bit too, going too deep too early maybe. (laughs) I can see myself bumbling through a response there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, amazing. So um, very interesting times. And, I mean, we talked a bit about bush adventure therapy earlier and I, I wanted to share one of my biggest realizations between sort of stage three and four lockdown was the power of nature to rejuvenate was not something i'd thought a lot about before i mean um, i am an outdoorsy person don't get me wrong but talking to yourself and our mutual new friend jez um about um bushwalks and run, runs in nature and just sort of doing some of the trails in um in mount martha kind of region uh really brought me a lot of peace and serenity during quite a difficult time in COVID and um, just wonder if you could reflect a bit on why that might be you know what why is it that when we're struggling um, doing simple things like running in nature or walking in nature and sort of just recognizing um, being in a uh, historic ancient place is quite a, a special experience. Yeah, this this is a big question, and I guess I want to shout out here to uh, my colleagues in the outdoor healthcare and and bush adventure therapy fields. There's a great organisation called the Australian Association of Bush Adventure Therapy that that spend a lot of time living this, unpacking this, and we are translating this into some work that a, a, a collective field of practice called outdoor healthcare are, are trying to unpack in Australia. Um, so any listeners, I encourage you to, to jump online and check out the out, Outdoor Healthcare website. Um, this is the conversation we're trying to bring to life more and more and we're trying to learn why um, connection to, na- to nature is so grounding, is so healing. Um, it's interesting because uh, I can't go any further without acknowledging our, our traditional owners of the land that we're on. Uh, Aboriginal people in Australia have have had this approach of um, working alongside nature to heal nature and self for tens of thousands of years. Um, I join you today from from Boonarong country and um, uh, I guess I acknowledge that I join you from the land um, that that I'm borrowing from others who who own it and have cared for it for a long time. Uh, And those cultures have shown that that when you're caring for the land, when you're grounded within place, uh, you you 
experienced direct healing benefits and and I'm not going to prepare pretend to be able to talk about uh, those benefits um, but I, I'd really encourage us all to think about what we can learn more from Indigenous cultures in how we engage with nature and how we use that for healing of self, others and the world around us. So, so that's the kind of first point. Um, I don't know as much as Indigenous cultures and, and that's who we should be asking this question of first and foremost. Um, but I've found that consistently, uh, that, well, the, the research that does this uh, from a kind of more Western mindset would talk about how connection with nature uh, typically occurs through activities that are physical. So it has those direct health benefits on heart rate, blood pressure. Uh, it provides exposure to vitamin D. And um, I guess there's that, that immediate kind of medical benefit of being in the outdoors. Um, there's a, a, a biological benefit attached to that um, where you, through regular exposure to the outdoors, you're going to create healthier internal systems um, that, that start to mirror or complement some of those external systems that you're interacting within, so the nature around you. Um, there's a, a spiritual or, or emotional benefit um, and I don't know about you, Mike, but I've always felt uh, smallest when I'm standing on a mountain realising how big the world around me is. Uh, it's also, I'm not a religious person, but it's also where I've felt something like spirituality, that there's more around me than just me. So there's something about being in nature that enables you to step out of yourself, outside of yourself and realise the world's bigger than you. And while that's humbling, it's also a really important context to, to come to terms with. Uh, there's an emotional and social um, point where being in the outdoors will often involve interaction with other things. So the natural world, uh, animals, so flora and fauna, um, but also uh, generally it's activities that we undertake with other people. So going for a walk or a run or camping with someone else and, and it's that social interaction in the outdoors that has, has heaps of benefit. Um, finally, emotionally, I think being in the outdoors enables, I find it the best space to regulate yourself. Your outdoors and the soles of your shoes are, are connected to, to earth. Um, your skin is connected to, to air. You're hearing sounds, you're smelling scents. And that, that to me, there's nothing more grounding than that. And that enables me to, to regulate and access a level of mindfulness that I couldn't do if I was listening to a mindfulness program in a room, in a house, uh, with all the thoughts about my working day going on. So I think there's something about the outdoors that facilitates that grounding experience. That's a wonderful response, Tom. Um, just on the mindfulness note, do you have a practice or are you a meditator? No, nah, I wish I was. Uh, I know you meditate and I've, I've got to tap into the skills that enable you to do that. Um, my partner, Bethany, and I actually walked the a section of the Pacific Crest Trail in America a couple of years ago. We spent four months hiking uh, every day along this trail. And one of my key personal goals to doing that work was to learn to be mindful. I've got a very busy mind and uh, putting that aside was always something I found really hard, perhaps because it's scary, um, activating mindfulness. Um, and I did learn to be more mindful on that walk, uh, I think because it's easier in nature. And it's something that's 
I've tried to continue to practice that. Certainly something I encourage in clients and colleagues to, to practice mindfulness, uh, but hand on heart, it's not something I'm great at, Mike. Do you have any tips? Yes. How, oh, how can tips, you use yeah. nature to activate mindfulness or, or meditation? <laughs> Well, well, like yourself, I have a very busy mind and that, that, that's what they say. Sometimes they say the people um, who most need it are often the ones who are going to try and avoid the most doing it. So I had to bite <laughs> down very hard on some advice from um, um, Jez, our good mate, who um, sort of suggested, you know, building a daily practice. And um, so the, the thing to think about is that mindfulness doesn't mean thinking about nothing. People get it confused. They think it's mindlessness, but really it's just the ability to kind of keep your attention on one thing, whether it's your breath or something outside or um, a tone or a smell. And uh, once you realize that it's you don't have to just be able to not think about anything and there's no sort of levitation trick to it, it becomes a bit easier to sort of buy into it and just try and, you know, concentrate on your breath. But, yeah, look, it is something that I've built into my days as, as a practice and it's a 10-minute practice, so it's very easy to fit in. But I do it between coming home from work or, you know, ending the workday and um, approaching the, the kind of the self or the, or the communal part of the, the day where it's a bit more personal time. And using it as a break um, between that kind of, you know, work and personal time has been a really nice segue. So I highly encourage anyone who's listening and, and yourself to give it a go. There's a lot of apps out there and I think that there's a lot of benefit to be benefit to be had. And I will say that I would actually probably prefer to be in nature and be mindful, but because it's not always practical, especially in stage four, this is a good, um, you know, adjunct to that. Yeah, absolutely. I love I love how you use that uh, as a bit of a third space activator, so to transition between different parts of life. And I think building that in is a really important self-care strategy uh, at times of stress and really important during times like COVID where that third space might literally be working, walking from one room of your house to another room of your house. Uh, between those different identities we spoke about earlier, activating mindfulness in the middle of that supports a much healthier transition. Do you have any survival tips or practices of your own that you want to share or things that you're doing to sort of make COVID a bit easier for you? Yeah, look, while mindfulness isn't um, something I feel like I'm very good at, I do find that I'm um, activating grounding activities regularly through every day. So um, I'll try and break up a day and make sure I do spend some time um, in nature just by being in my backyard. So I'm not trying to overreach and uh, go on a massive hike on the Wilson's Promontory, which would be amazing, but but unachievable at the moment. Um, so I make sure I get outside every day. Um, I think you spoke earlier about routine and I've been very strict with my routine and, and having set work hours. Um, and it can be a really busy work day, but I, I stick to those set kind of work hours of, of eight till six. I, I don't do anything work-related outside of that time. Uh, and often I'll I'll do less than that time um, and, and it's more like a nine till five day. That's harder when you're working from home. So um, I've found that I've had to be quite strict with that routine. Um, I, I've still maintained uh, connection with loved ones, which is really important and, and reaching out to them and, and letting them know when I'm struggling has been really important. Um, but I've got to say, I haven't connected socially as much as what I need. Um, my, my life at work is, is in Zoom land and I do find that making phone calls or having Zoom catch-ups 
outside of work hours and on weekends brings me right crashing right back into that space. <laughs> me um, too. <laughs> so I think I'm surviving, Mike, but but definitely not thriving in this context as a as a social being who'd like to be going far further afield from home than I currently am. I feel you, mate. Look, um, to end, do you have any tips, recommendations, advice about anything you're reading, books, resources, podcasts, uh, movies? Oh, look, I'm inspired so much every day by by the people around me. Um, so, so I don't have any specific advice around what I'm reading at the moment. I'm having amazing conversations with lots of people around me about complex thinking and how we apply that to the way we interact with the world, that there's no such thing as a silver bullet to a problem. Having some really interesting conversations about how uh, we need to move away from evidence-based responses to problems to having evidence-informed approaches that draw the best from multiple evidence bases to provide solutions that meet the complexity of, of the problem and, and to ensure that they're localised, place-based and co-designed with participants. I really think we have to think harder about how we care for each other and provide interventions um, and that there's not off-the-shelf products that work for that space. And, and I'm spending a lot of time talking about strategy and approaches to, to activating that um, so, so if anyone else wants to talk about that, I'd welcome it at any time. Well, that's a good time to sort of share. If people want to, you know, learn more about you or your work, how can they get in touch? Yeah, so I'm on uh, LinkedIn um, and my name's Tom Mulvaney on LinkedIn, but but I work at a fantastic organisation called Family Life. Um, we're based in southeast Melbourne and anyone can reach me through Family Life as well. Tom, thanks so much for joining me, mate. It's been a wonderful chat as always. Mike, thanks so much for having me. It's a real privilege. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 